Father in heaven, we just pray that as we open up to Matthew chapter 20 this morning, that, that your Holy Spirit would be here amongst us, Lord. May you reveal to us what true service looks like. Uh, and Father, may you show me how to clearly communicate what you've put upon my heart. And may each person leave with a special message tailor-made for them, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I got the opportunity to travel to India. This was probably about eight years ago. And we've been doing some projects there at a school and a few different things. But we got some time to have do some sightseeing. Now, do you guys like sightseeing? Do you ever find sightseeing gets a little bit boring? No? Maybe? I enjoy looking at old buildings like this, but sometimes I appreciate it more if you can do something when you're there, whether it's ride a bike instead of looking at the Golden Gate Bridge, ride a bike over the Golden Gate Bridge, or actually have an experience when you're there. So we were in, in India, and we are looking at these old buildings, and we were thinking, what can we do that can make this a little bit more interesting? And then we saw some people riding on this, these elephants, and we thought, oh, that'll be, that'll be a memorable thing to do. Let's go and have a, an elephant ride. And so we, we went up, and there's, these, it's, it's, there's a big staircase going up to the elephant because you can't just jump on them. They're pretty humongous. And um, we got on this elephant, and we're riding along, and I thought, I, I want to remember this moment. So I got my little camera out, and I was trying to take a sort of a selfie of myself on the elephant. And it's very hard to take a selfie when you're on an elephant, unless you have one of those like, super wide-angle lenses on whatever camera you're using. The, the elephant's so big, and you can't get it all in just of yourself. So as we're going around, there was a, a guy that was... He was sort of helping lead the elef elephant along. He wasn't the, the main guy that we had paid for the ride. And he's like, oh, give me your camera, give me your camera. And so, I, so I, I handed it to him, hoping he wouldn't just run off with it. And he started taking these photos. And he was, he was so helpful, and I was so appreciative of the photos that he took. He took photos from the side. He took photos with our hands up, photos with, us, with me sitting on the head of the elephant, close-up photos. And he was just super helpful, and I was so thankful just for his generosity in, in just helping me get these, these photos and to have these memories of riding on this elephant. However, when it came time to get off this elephant, we got to the top of those big stairs, and I started hopping off, and I paid the man for the, the, the ride on the elephant, and I started walking away when, can you guess what happened? The man who took the photos raced up to me and started demanding me for some money. And I thought, I thought this man was so generous, so caring, but really it was just this tricky person who was trying to, to think that he's helping me, when really he's just wanting to get some sort of reward for what he was doing. And that really brings us to the, the title of our sermon today, and that is True Service. What does true service look like? What is the attitude that we should have when we are serving, when we are doing acts of service for God, acts of love to the people around us, and what, how do we relate to the reward that God might potentially give us for that service? And that's what we're looking at today. So open up your Bibles, and we're going to look, we're going to begin in Matthew chapter 19, because to understand the context of, what, of where we're going to be in Matthew 20, you have to first understand the situation that is happening amongst the disciples in chapter 19. So last week, uh, Pastor David Haupt took us through the first part of chapter 19, but we, we're going to pick it up from verse 
16. So Matthew chapter 19, verse 16, it says, And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, uh, honor your mother and your father, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Just listed off a, a number of the, of the Ten Commandments. And verse 20 says, The young man said to him, All these I have kept, what do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. So here, Jesus gives this man a kind of, might call an ultimatum, or a this or that. You can either have this great wealth, and this man, was a, he was a healthy, he was wealthy, he was powerful, he had position, and it seems evident that that meant a lot to him. And so he's there, and he's, he's weighing up this thing that Jesus said. Jesus said, sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me. And so he looks at Jesus, and he looks back to his possessions. He looks at Jesus, he looks back to his possessions, and he chooses his possessions. And it says, in one, what might be one of the saddest words in Scripture, it says in verse 22, When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. What would you do if Jesus asked you to give all? It's one thing to read about it in Scripture, but if Jesus asked you to give up everything, and you had to choose between everything you own, every position you have, and Jesus, how would you respond? Now, it's in the context of this that um, well, firstly, Jesus continues to, to explain the situation after he leaves. He says, verse 23, And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Okay, does that sound like a fairly easy task? To take that gigantic camel and pass it through that eye of, of the needle? The metaphor is drawing here on the, the largest animal that they, that they um, had in that, in that region of the world and the smallest little opening that they could think of. For, and Jesus is using this to, to, to say that it's, and it's, it's an impossible task. And in other parts of the world, they've, they've found the same metaphor. Instead of a camel, it's an elephant. Can it, it's easy for a rich man, it's easy for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples are listening in on this. And in response, they say, When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? And this is where the hope comes in. But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God, what? All things are possible. And Peter is listening to Jesus say these things, and he's, I can, you can almost imagine the, the, the rich young man, still in the, you can still see him um, walking off in the distance, and Peter starts reflecting on his own experience. And he thinks back to when he was um, by, the, by the, the Sea of Galilee and he's fishing. And Jesus came along and said those same words to him, follow me. And Peter reflects on it and he remembers how 
he left the nets, he left the boat, he left his livelihood, he left everything that was familiar to him, he left his family and followed Jesus, leaving everything behind him but taking hold of Jesus. And as Peter reflects on this, he realizes that he's done the very thing that the rich young ruler was unwilling to do. And as he realizes this, he turns to Jesus and he says, verse 27, it says, Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? In other words, he's saying, Okay, we've, we've, we've done the requirement that you've asked. What's in it for us? What's the reward that we're going to get for giving up everything and following you? And maybe there's some people here who have thought similar things. In whatever line of service that you've been involved in for God, or whatever things you've done in your life, you may have thought, have you ever wondered how God is going to reward you for all of your work and sacrifice? Has anyone ever wondered that? How is God, you've been, maybe you've had late nights, you've been going the extra mile, you've been been, um, sacrificing so you can donate more to a, a worthy cause, whatever it might be. How is God going to reward you for all of your work and all of your sacrifice. Let's see what Jesus said to Peter in response. It says, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. In other words, in the kingdom, you're going to sit on the throne with me. He goes on to say, verse 29, And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. If this promise is true, then can we really sacrifice for Jesus? If every time we give something up for Jesus, he promises to reward us a hundredfold, Do we ever end up with less than what we started with? We can't really sacrifice for Jesus because he's always going to bless us in return. And maybe you're thinking, hang on, Jared, this sounds a little bit like the prosperity gospel. That if we work hard enough for God, if we donate enough money, if we we do enough, we pray hard enough, we read our Bibles hard enough, God's going to bless us and he will make us rich and happy and comfortable and everything will go well. Does it seem to communicate that? On the surface, it does. On the surface, when you read this, it seems that no matter what you sacrifice for God, that you will just be richly blessed in every sort of way. And it would be the case if it wasn't for the last words of the chapter. And these last words are going to give us sort of the springboard into which we're going to go into chapter 20. And it says, in verse 30, chapter 19, verse 30, So he's just said that you'll receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But he says, but many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. What do these cryptic words mean? Many who are first will be last, and the the last will be first. Jesus here is trying to turn our thinking upside down. And hasn't he been doing that all the way through Matthew? Think of the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, okay? Those people who thought that they just were absolutely spiritually bankrupt in God's kingdom, 
they're blessed. What about blessed are those who mourn? Do you feel privileged and blessed when you're grieving and you're mourning? Well, in God's kingdom, there's a blessing there. What about when someone slaps you on the cheek? How do we respond? In the kingdom, the kingdom response, as Jesus says, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the, the other one also and let him slap that one. That's not what we naturally want to do. But here Jesus is changing our, under, our, our thinking and he's turning it upside down. What about if you have an enemy? How do you treat them? Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Jesus here is turning our thinking upside down. And so what is he meaning when he says, but many who are first will be last and the last first. Now chapter 20 is going to explain what it means for the first to be last and the last to be first. Now it begins with a parable. And Jesus tells a parable of a a wealthy landowner who has a vineyard and he needs some people to work in his, in his vineyard. So he goes down to the marketplace right at, at sunrise and he sees some workers down there, just some people who are looking for some work. And he gets to them and he starts saying, oh, I've got this vineyard back in my place and I'd love for you to work for me. And they have a little negotiation and he agrees to pay them a denarius for a day's work. And a denarius is, is the usual rate that someone would get receive for a day's work in the time of Jesus. And so they go there, and they're, and they're laboring in the vineyards, and they're picking the grapes. I guess that's what, what they'll be doing, and, and just and digging in the soil, and, and, and planting, and, and all the things they're doing. And, and the landowner's looking at the work still to be done, and he thinks, we need more workers. So he goes back down to the marketplace, and by now it's maybe 9, 9 a.m., and he says, um, okay, we need some more work. I've, we've still got plenty of work. Now, don't worry about the wages. I'll give you what is fair. And so they come down. And then, and then there's still more work to be done. So he goes back down at, at midday, and then at 3 p.m. And finally, he goes down at what they call the 11th hour of the day. So that would have been an hour before sunset. There's only one hour of the working day left. And he sees these people, and he says, why are you just standing here not doing any work? And they say, well, no one's asked us. He said, come, come to my vineyard and work for me, and I'll give you what is... And I'll, don't worry about what I'll give you. I'll give you what is fair. So they come down for, for the hour's work. And so at the end, of the end of the day, there's a whole bunch of people, and they've all worked different amounts. And it comes time for the landowner to, to pay them for, what, for their wages for the day. Now, let's go to chapter 20, and let's see how the story finishes up. So Matthew 20, verse, in verse 8, we see, we pick up the story. It says, And when everything came, or, or when evening came, sorry, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them the wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me to work for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. Choose to give to this worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with my belongings, with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? And it finishes with our key words, so the last will be first and the first last. So the people who have been working all day long 
They see the first people who've been working for only an hour, and they get a denarius. And you can imagine what they're thinking. Their minds are doing the little mathematical calculations, and they're thinking, one hour equals a denarius. When they go through the process and they come to 12 hours of work, surely there must be 12 denarius, 12 coins. But as they go down, denarius, 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 and they become increasingly agitated, frustrated, and then when they only get one denarius themselves, I just imagine them being angry. How come you pay them the same as you paid us? We had to work through the entire day, including when it was the hottest. And they, and they receive a sharp rebuke from the landowner. It's my money. I can do what I want with it. So what does this teach us about the first being last and the last first? And what does this teach us about true service? There's four things that I want to suggest that this parable warns us against. And the first one of these is focusing on others while focusing on others. I remember when I was back at college, I got a, I've got a few stories from a few trips today. Um, I got to go to the Solomon Islands, and I went there with my mate Ben, and we were there with a, um, being sent out from, out from the college on a, a college trip. And our job was to go there and to preach this evangelistic series. And we went to, the, to a place called Alki on Malaita, if you know the Solomon Islands. And we get there, and there's this, the place where we're going to preach is this, is this big outdoor field. And they have this sort of this stage. It was a pretty cool, cool stage, actually, that they had set up in, in just on the edge of the, of the field. And we go there with no idea what to expect. But we're praying and we're hoping that God is going to really bless us for the work that we do there. And the first night comes, and we're not sure if anyone will come, but they came in their truckloads, literally in their truckloads. I don't know how many people they've got in that truck, but there was these trucks coming in, and the place was, um, there was many people in, in, the, in the dark field there, and we started preaching to them night after night. There's my friend Ben preaching. Uh, it was two weeks long, and, um, and through that time, we had some baptism appeals. And I remember sometimes when you're away from home, you just sort of get this this passion that you just, um, when you, there's no one there that really knows you. I remember my friend Ben, he's a more of a reserved sort of person, and he made this baptism appeal that I end up calling the Hallelujah Appeal. He had, he first asked something, something like, would you like to accept Jesus as your Savior, then write, raise your hand, and then he asked some other question. He said, raise your other hand, and all these people are like raising both hands, and so I, I made fun of him afterwards. It was the, the Hallelujah Appeal, and, and we just preached our hearts out through those two weeks. And at the end, we had a big baptism um, as a result of it. And there was 18 people that got baptized down um, at the marketplace right there by the water. And there was the boats. And it was just a beautiful setting. Um, and I remember just, just being on such a high and so thankful to God for, for what He did. And, and just having such a buzz for what, how God had worked through us to, to reach these people's lives for Jesus. And... The next day came, and it was time to go home, and we went over to that the little airport, the little grass strip, and we got there, and the plane was full, and we couldn't get on that plane. And then the next plane, the next day, was, had bad weather, and the next plane got cancelled, and then our, our, our planes back to Australia, we missed those. So we ended up missing five planes on the, on the way back. And so I didn't get to hear what all the other groups and the, and the results and the experiences that the other groups had had while they were there, until maybe a couple of weeks later. And so when we finally got home, and there was about five different 
pairs of people that went out to different islands to, to preach these evangelistic series. And, and when, I got, when I got home, I was just so excited, and I eventually found someone who had been there when they were all sharing the stories, how the other groups had gone. And I went, oh, tell me, how did all the other groups go? And they started sharing how the other groups went, and, and, and oh, so-and-so was over in this island, and oh, they had such a good experience, and they had 30 baptisms. And another place, they had 40 baptisms. And I started thinking, man, my 18 baptisms isn't quite as many as I once thought it was. And in that moment, I went from being so excited about what God had done to almost being a little bit discouraged. Have we done, had our appeal, appeals been earnest enough? Have we preached with enough passion? Was there something that we missed out on? Because because why did they have so much success and, and we didn't? And, it's, and in those moments, when you take your eyes off just what you're doing for God and you start focusing on what other people are doing, it's easy for those, that pride to, to grow up and that jealousy to, to raise, its, raise its head. And that's what we see taking place in this parable as well. The people, if they didn't know what had happened with the other people's experiences, they would have been absolutely content with one denarius for their day's work. But as they're focusing on the work of the, ma- of the master, they're also focusing on the other people and their work for the master. And as they focus on others while focusing on others, we see that they become, to become unstuck. So it reminds me of Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3, and it says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Isn't that a challenge? When it comes to serving God, it's, we assume that we do so with such pure motives, but so easy it's, it's so easy for that selfish ambition to raise itself. Point number two. This parable warns us against selfish generosity. Another story from, from traveling around, this here is in Jordan. And when we're flying into Jordan, I was on the plane and there was this Iraqi uh, man that was sitting just, just behind me. And, and somehow I got into a conversation with him and we started talking about all sorts of things. We started talking about Islam and I asked all sorts of questions about his faith and he was asking questions about my faith. And we had, we, by the end, we had this, we developed this, this, this real sort of friendship. And when we got, became close to Jordan, we were soon gonna, going to land in Jordan, he looked at me and said, oh, do you have anywhere to stay when you get to Jordan? And I thought, oh yeah, we've already got we're just going to be going straight across to Israel, but when we come back, we'll have a night in Jordan. He said, oh, you have to come and stay at my place. And I thought, oh, this sounds like a bit of a recipe for disaster. A random stranger that I've met who's now asked me to go and stay at his house. But I, I, have, heard these, I have heard people talk about the incredible hospitality that people in the Middle East have, and, and what an experience to stay with someone who you met on the plane. And so I'm wrestling with this in my mind, thinking... Okay, should I just be safe and, and just ignore this person's um, requ- this invitation? Or should I just sort of just risk it a little bit, go the more adventurous route and say, all right, when we come back through, let's stay at your place. And so I'm wrestling with this in my mind. And he starts talking to me about this. And then pretty soon he starts talking about his desires to come to Australia. And I'm start- starting to think, hmm, I can connect in my mind the logical progression here. And then he starts talking about how to come to Australia, they need someone from Australia to write this letter of, of a, or like a reference letter for them 
and to say what they're like and, and to, um, to help them get their visa into Australia. And I went again from just like the person with the, the camera in India, I went from being, oh, this person is so generous to this person just wants to get to Australia. And they're being generous to me in order to, in order to um, get something for themselves. And as I think about this, it makes me think about what are the motives with which we serve God? Are we serving God simply out of love and out of a desire to serve Him and a desire to help others? Or is selfishness, and it is a desire to get something in return, a desire to get a reward, is that the real motive for why we are serving? In the book, Christ's Object Lessons, which talks about this story, this parable that we're, we've been studying, Ellen White says this, it says, she says, the smallest duty done in sincerity and self-forgetfulness is more pleasing to God than the greatest work when marred with self-seeking. So there could be someone who's, who's labored their entire life and have achieved great things for God. But does that compare with the smallest duty done in self-forgetfulness? It goes on to say, He looks to see how much the Spirit of Christ we cherish and how much of the likeness of Christ our work reveals. And He regards more the love and faithfulness with which we work than the amount that we do. So it's not about how much we do for God as much as it is about the way in which we approach and the way in which we labor for God. Point number three. This parable warns us against 11th hour discouragement. Okay, do you have any idea what I mean by 11th hour discouragement? As I have talked with different people in this church and, and different people that I've, I've talked with, I've often come across people saying how they regret that they didn't start serving God sooner. Okay, they look back over their life and they Maybe they had a bit of an experience with God back in their teenage years or as a child. But for many people, they have this life where it just makes, they just take this big detour. And it's not until their later years of their life where they come to really be, get serious about God and they really start to think, man, I want to serve God with all of my heart. And as they get to this point, they look back in the past and, they, and they're filled with maybe regret and maybe um, just discouragement that they haven't served God all the way through. And I love in this story of this parable because we see the two people on display. We see the person that worked right through the heat of the day, but we also see the person who only worked for that last hour and for the rest of the day, they were just twiddling their thumbs at the marketplace. So what does this have to, what does this share with us about people with 11th hour discouragement? I want to cast our minds to a later part in the story of Jesus, in Luke chapter 23, when Jesus is hanging on the cross. Because again, we encounter someone who was an 11th hour Christian. And maybe they're at 11th hour and 59 minutes. This is like right at the very end. And it says, one of the criminals who, was, who hanged, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, this is one of the criminals. So when Jesus died on the cross, there was a criminal on his left and on his right also being crucified. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? See yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And he said, Jesus, remember me when you, 
when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today, you will be with me in paradise. Is that fair? Is that fair for someone who has been a rebel and a criminal their entire life to get to the very last moment and say, you know what? I'm going to I'm going to choose to accept Jesus right before I take my last breath. Is that fair? Is the gospel fair? That's not fairness, that's grace. And what this parable reveals to us is the way in which God relates to us, and that is he relates to us with this exceeding amount of grace. In Christ Object Lessons it says, Those who came into the vineyard at the 11th hour were thankful for an opportunity to work. They knew they had not earned such wages, and the kindness expressed in the countenance of the employer filled them with joy. It goes on to say, Thus it is with the sinner who, knowing his unworthiness, has entered the master's vineyard at the 11th hour. His time of service seems so short, he feels that he is undeserving of reward. But he's filled with joy that God has accepted him at all. He works with a humble, trusting spirit, thankful for the privilege of being a co-worker with Christ. This spirit God delights to honor. The words that jump out to me here are joy, thankfulness, humility, trust. These are the characteristics that the 11th hour Christian, it's it's almost, they almost have an advantage over the other people in, in, in having these things. Because they understand that they've, they've, their unworthiness because they've neglected God for so long and God still accepts them the same. And so in fact, it is the 11th hour Christian who finds it easiest to serve with thankfulness, humility, and enjoy. And so if that's you, then be encouraged that, that as it said earlier, the smallest a little bit of work that's done with self-forgetfulness is regarded by God as, as more than the greatest amount of work without those characteristics. And if you're an 11th hour Christian, those characteristics of God's kingdom are even easier to possess because of the nature of the situation and experience that you find yourself in. Point number four. Being... The, this parable warns us against being saved by grace, yet working to be saved. Has anyone ever found themselves in that sort of situation? Yes, we know that we're saved by grace, but surely my works count for something. Surely they contribute in some part towards the salvation that I'm receiving, don't they? And I think that this, is, this conclusion is what frustrated the people who worked the whole day, because when they saw a denarius given to every single person, they realized that their work didn't really count for the reward. In fact, their, their work, I mean, the reward was based so much more upon the generosity of the landowner than the hard work that they had right through the day. And no one will get to heaven and say, wow, I'm here because of my work back on earth. Do you believe that? Salvation is Christ's work and not ours. One of my favorite verses in the Bible that explains this is Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 to 10. And it says, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not from yourself, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, 
which God prepared in advance for us to do. Let's unpack this step by step. The first part, for it is by grace you have been saved. What does the word grace mean? Grace means an act of undeserved kindness. Do we find that in the parable? Do the people who worked for one hour, did they deserve the kindness that they received? They didn't. It was an act of undeserved kindness. And how has Jesus given us an act of undeserved kindness? Well, let me give you a little diagram that shows that I think is helpful in understanding how this all works. So up on the screen, we see humanity. Okay, this represents each and every one of you. Now, as the Bible story tells us, humanity connected themselves with sin, and sin is, is, is rebellion against God. It's a, it's, a wrong rela- it's a bad relationship with God. It's disobedience. It's, it's rebellion against the will of God. And that is the, this place where each one of us finds ourselves in. But as Scripture reveals to us, the wages of sin is what? Is death. So humanity connects itself with sin, and so we deserve death. Well, what about Jesus? How is his life different from us? Righteousness. What is righteousness? Righteousness is, the easiest way to understand it is it's the opposite of sin. If sin is disobedience, righteousness is obedience. If sin is being outside of the revealed will of God, righteousness is conformity to the will of God. If sin is a, is a broken relationship with God, then righteousness is a right relationship with God. And, and what does a, a life of righteousness deserve? It eternal life. It deserves life and eternal life. But this is what Jesus has done for us. Jesus said, you know what, humanity, you have your sin, but I'm going to take your place of sin. And so here, Jesus, in taking our sin, he now has sin, and he now deserves what? Death. And he died that death for us upon the cross. But he doesn't just take our sin, but he gives us his righteousness. There we go. Humanity now has the righteousness. And if we have the righteousness of Christ credited to our life, what do we now deserve? We deserve life. And it says this in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus didn't deserve the sin that he took upon the cross, and neither do we deserve the righteousness that he gives us. But it's an act of grace. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. But won't we have to believe? Doesn't that count for something? Faith is simply the key that unlocks the gift of God to our life. Imagine someone gives you a, a, a present, it's all wrapped up, freely given to you. But don't you have to unwrap that present? Faith is the way, believing and trusting in Jesus, the way that we unwrap that gift of forgiveness and eternal life that Jesus gives us. And then it goes on to say, and this is not from yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ to do good works. So as I said earlier, there's no one who's going to find themselves in heaven and say, I'm here because of what I've done on earth. But rather, salvation is a work of God and not a work of us. But in response to that, as we realize what God has done with us, and that overflows in a, in a heart of that responds in love and and. and and understanding of God's compassion, it motivates us. It motivates us to serve God with a love that is even greater than if we were serving God for our own self-interest. And it goes on to say in Christ's Object Lessons, The reward is not of works, lest any man should boast, but it is all of grace. 
He who, be, he who grudges the reward of, to another forgets that he himself is saved by grace alone. And that's what we see in this parable. So why serve at all? Why serve at all? 1 John 4.19 says, We love because he first loved us. True service is a service that is motivated by love and not by reward. Christ's object lesson says, When Christ abides in the soul, the thoughts of reward are not uppermost. This is not the motive that actuates our service. It says, It is true that in a subordinate sense we should have respect to the recompense of reward. God desires us to appreciate His promised blessing. So this doesn't mean we just think nothing of heaven, we think nothing of eternal life, we think nothing of, of the way that God is going to richly bless us in, re- in reward for serving Him. But love to God and to our fellow men should be our motive. And then it says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good, good, good works. When Christ's love abides in the soul, it will overflow in selfless service to God and to our fellow human beings. True service is service motivated by love, not reward. So let's finish the story here. So Jesus just gives this this, um, exposition in this, this teaching on what true service looks like. And the disciples, remember before this, Peter said, what's in it for us, Jesus? What reward will we get? Let's see if the disciples have got the lesson. Do you think they have? Were the disciples pretty quick in learning the lessons that Jesus wanted to teach them? Let's see if they learn the lesson. Verse 17. And as Jesus was going up to the Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Here, Jesus is, is sharing with the disciples how he is going to live out what true service looks like, how he is going to put the human race before everyone else, and his life will be poured out as a, in suffering and in sacrifice, in, in love for us. And then along comes a little mother to Jesus. And this is what she says. Verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, two of the disciples of Jesus who are listening to all of this, came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, We are able. What an incredible contrast. Jesus here is describing to them how he is about to go to the cross and be poured out as a sacrifice, to have his life to be tortured and beaten and spat upon for the human race out of his love for them. And then James and John, in the, in the very next thing, not even willing to ask themselves, their mother comes and asks on their behalf, and they say, can, can James and John be first and second in your kingdom, Jesus, at your left side and at your right side? Do they get it? Or are they thinking of the reward? They're thinking 
of the reward. And Jesus says to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? What does Jesus mean when he says this? Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? In Matthew 26, Jesus, we see a little insight into what Jesus is talking about. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed. This is in the, just before the cross, saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not I will, but as you will. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven? Are you willing to, to drink the cup of true greatness? Are you willing to sacrifice like I am willing to sacrifice? And in the midst of this, there's a little textual connection that brings out something even deeper in the text here. They asked to be on Jesus' left and his right. Well, who was on Jesus' left and his right when he drank the cup of suffering? We mentioned it a little bit earlier. It says, Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. It's the exact same phrase that we find earlier on in Scripture. Artie France, in his commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, says, The well-informed reader of the Gospel will notice the same phrase, one on the right and one on the left, to describe those crucified with Jesus in 27 verse 38, and may reflect that the true nature of Jesus' kingship is such that to be on his right and left is not at all what the brothers envisioned. Is Jesus turning their understanding upside down? What does it mean to be great in the kingdom of heaven? Maybe it looks like this. Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, take up your cross and follow me. Greatness is found not in what you receive, not in the, in the position that you aspire to, not in the rewards that you so desperately try to cling to or, and to grasp, but greatness in the kingdom is found in your willingness, in your willingness to give. On the cross, being motivated by love, Jesus gave everything. This is greatness. So how does this connect with us this week? How do we be people of true service as we go into our lives in the coming days? Well, let's I want to remind you of four things which are coming directly out of what we've just discussed. Number one, Rejoice when others are blessed or when they succeed. Remember he said, don't focus on others while focusing on others. Okay? Don't be like the person who said, who was angry when the person he worked for only one hour got the full reward. But when God blesses another, when God does powerful things for another, let's not condemn, let's not let that spirit of jealousy or pride rise up within us, but let's be thankful and grateful and let's encourage them and let's give thanks to God. Number two, be appreciative of God's blessings, but be motivated by His love. God has incredible blessings for us. Soon He's going to return, He's going to come again, and He's going to take us, He's going to give us new bodies. He's going to recreate this world, a world of paradise. We're going to live forever and ever with God. And we need to appreciate those blessings. But our number one motive is not to be that. We should not be motivated primarily and, for, and firstly by the reward that Jesus offers us. But let's be motivated by His love. Number three, remember that salvation is God's work. And it's so easy for us to forget this. We think of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. 
as soon as they realize their sin problem and their disconnection from God, what do they do? They tried to fix it themselves. They started making little clothes out of leaves and started covering them with, with, and God says, no, 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 that's not how you're going to fix the problem. That's not how you'll be saved. Take those off. Here, here is the skin of an animal pointing forward to how I am going to die upon the cross for you. Salvation is not our work, but it's God's work. Point number four, greatness is found not in your, will, in your desire to receive, but in your willingness to give. And as we go into the week, our weeks um, this week, let's have an attitude of true service. Let's be generous. Let's be selfless. Let's fix our eyes upon what Jesus has done for us and let His love for us motivate us to serve Him with, an, with a, a love in return. As we pray, if there's someone here who wants to say to Jesus that I'm trusting in nothing but the blood of Jesus, then as we pray, I encourage you just to raise your hand with me. Father in heaven, Lord, we just thank you for your incredible love that you have come to this earth to die on a cross for us. Lord, there's nothing we can do to add to your sacrifice. There's nothing to do to take away from your sacrifice, Lord. And we are trusting in nothing but the precious blood of Jesus. Lord, you took our place. You died our death and you give us eternal life. And Lord, I'm trusting, and all of us who've got our hands here today are trusting in nothing but the blood of Jesus. Lord, may we appreciate your love for us this week. May it stir our hearts and our minds, Lord. And may we go into our weeks motivated to true service, Lord. Motivated by your love for us and love for each other. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Hey, greetings from beautiful and sunny Kingscliff, Australia. I want to take just a moment of your time, first of all, to thank you for tuning in, watching the program. I trust it was a blessing to you and your soul drawing you closer to God and His will for your life. I also want to let you know that we are planning a significant expansion of our existing media ministry here at the Kingscliff Church. To find out more about this expansion and how you can get involved, go to bringitkingscliff.com. You can go either to the homepage or to the Our Gifts page to find out how you can come alongside us and support, not just with your viewership, but also financially and with your prayers. Hey, thanks again so much for watching and take care.